Well, we're almost there. It's five days away from Christmas and what has felt like the longest year of history, I think we're going to be able to celebrate, hopefully in a very special way. But what we're also nearing is the end of John. For the past year, we have focused on the Gospel of John. And if you're a guest here tonight, we wanted to let you know exactly why since January until now, we've been looking line by line, verse by verse at the entire Gospel of John. And that's because as a church, as individuals, we want to learn how to live and to love like Jesus. And that's exactly why we've put so much time and energy into focusing on just one book. You know, there's a lot of excitement in the air about Christmas. And maybe you as a family have made one of those paper chains as part of the Advent experience so that you and your family could count down the number of days left until Christmas. At the Heller House, we have this little Christmas tree wall hanging that has these numbers of the month of December and a candy cane that you move from one day to the next. And my son Cade for the past several years has been Johnny on the spot. I mean, he is just really good at moving that candy cane. He does not want us at the Heller House to miss Christmas. You know, as a church family, we don't want to miss the real meaning of Christmas. And so that's why this Advent experience has helped us focus on the appearing of Jesus at his birth. But also we have looked at over the past several weeks the appearing of Jesus after he resurrected from the dead because we believe that if you miss one or the other of those, you really miss who Jesus truly is. And we want to focus on both of those so that we can follow him. So far this month, we've looked at the hope that was present in the heart of Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as Mary Magdalene, who was one of the first persons to meet the resurrected Christ. We've also looked at the peace that filled both Jesus' earthly parents, but also his followers after his resurrection. And faith, we saw it displayed by Joseph and by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, but also a guy named Thomas, who's mostly known as Doubting Thomas, but he actually was a man who was full of faith and full of courage. And this week, we want you to see the joy that's present, both at Jesus' birth as well as at his resurrection. We're going to start off just by looking at the first verses of John 21. So why don't you turn there with me? And we're going to just jump in right there. It seems like at the end of John chapter 20, John's kind of wrapping up his whole gospel in a package with a big old bow on top by making some conclusive statements. We've looked at these verses several times over the past year. But John says, like, there are many miraculous things that Jesus has done that are not recorded in this book. But the ones I recorded, he says, are so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Now, the moment that John adds in John 21 does not take away from this thrust of his book. In fact, I would say that this is another miraculous moment that points to exactly who Jesus is. So let's see what happens as we jump into John chapter 21. Follow along in verses 1 through 3, where we see the disciples going on another fishing trip. Verse 1 says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat. But that night they caught nothing. 
John is recording another appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And he'll note later in verse 14 that this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. Though we know that he appeared to many other people during this period between his resurrection and his ascension. Acts chapter 1 says that there are 40 days that happen between these two moments. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus appeared to Peter, he appeared to the entire disciples, and he also appeared to 500 different people all in person. And all these appearances were proof that he made a bodily resurrection. In fact, Acts 1 verse 3 says they're convincing proofs that he came back to life. In John chapter 21, John lists seven people who go out to fish together. And they're present when Jesus makes this appearance. He was one of them, along with his brother James. Thomas was there. He didn't want to miss another moment where the disciples were together because the last time he didn't show up, something really spectacular happened. I hope that's what you feel like if you were to miss our gatherings here at Crossroads, like you're going to miss something. You don't want to see, you don't want to miss anything that might happen. And Thomas felt the same way. A guy named Nathaniel was there. We saw him as one of the people that were first invited to follow Jesus back in John chapter 1. Two unnamed disciples were there. And most commentators think that this is Andrew and Philip. They were two of the first disciples and they were fellow fishermen. They were associated with the disciples. And also Peter is there. Six of these seven men were fishermen by trade, and they were all from the same area around the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's a healthy amount of criticism about these men deciding to go fishing. Some people think that it's an abandoning of the call that Jesus placed on their life. Now, if you're a person that's ever skipped church to go fishing, maybe the criticism is fair. But I don't think it's fair for these men right here. And here's why. First, we have to realize that these men were seeing the events of Jesus' death and his resurrection all playing out in real time. I mean, within seven days, they had seen their best friend crucified, executed at the hands of the Romans. And this was not just a good friend or a best friend. This was actually somebody that they had abandoned in their families as well as their careers to follow because they believed he truly was the Son of God, the Messiah. They were still trying to understand why he died and now wrapped their brains around the fact that he had resurrected. It was a lot to take in. They might have gone fishing that morning just to clear their minds, to get some space, maybe just to have some time together privately to process in a familiar, comfortable place. They might have also just needed to put some bread on the table for their families or for themselves. And so they, they went back to a career that they knew best, fishing. They had not yet received the commission to go into all the world and make disciples. So I think this abandoning the call criticism of these men is, is unfair. But regardless, their fishing expedition that morning came up very empty. And that's why I don't like to fish. I don't really have the patience to stand there, hold a pole, and wait for something to nibble. Okay, that's just not in my DNA. And so let's see what happened to these men as they came up empty on their fishing trip. Look at verse 4 where we see a miraculous catch. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples, they didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. After fishing all night, which was very common in the ancient world because of a higher yield that happened when it was cooler at night. 
But also, as a fisherman, you wanted to have fresh fish for the market in the morning. And so, to make a profit, you wanted to catch fish at night to sell them at the market. This type of fishing was hard work. It was not really a sport. And there might be some symbolism that we see here. John has had throughout his entire gospel some themes, some contrasts. And one of those is between darkness and light. It was dark at night, fishing, finding nothing, being hopeless. And then it's light filled because not just it's the morning, but Jesus has appeared. They said, but John says that they were about 100 year, yards off of the shore, about the distance of a football field. And somebody from the shore hollers out to them and asks them a question what every fisherman hates to answer. Hey, did you catch anything? Well, they don't recognize the person nor the voice. But they also don't seem to be offended by his suggestion that they throw their nets on the right side of the boat. There's no pun intended there, right? When they did, they experienced another miracle. I use the word another because these same group of men were present back when Luke chapter 5 records another miraculous fish catching. And that happened when Jesus first invited these men to be his followers. They had been fishing for a long period of time. They were worn out and they were tired. And Jesus encourages them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat. And when they do, a miraculous fish catch happened. These are two different moments, but they have some similarities. And I want to focus tonight on the reaction of the disciples. It's where I see joy appearing. Look what happens now in verse 7. When the disciple whom Jesus loved, we know that that is the author of John, John himself, when he said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer, outer garments around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in a boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and he dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, he took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's John this morning who makes the observation that this person on the shore is actually Jesus. But it's Peter who takes action and jumps into the water and heads toward him. You might have noticed in that description that Peter actually put on more clothes when he jumped into the water to swim to shore. That feels a little unusual to us because when you and I go fishing, we actually take as many clothes off as possible. Well, in the ancient world, like I said, fishing was hard work. And it was known for fishermen to actually strip down completely, maybe just having a loincloth on as they did their work. And when Peter knew that it was Jesus on the shore, he knew that arriving to meet his rabbi, his Messiah, half clad, would not be appropriate. And so he took his outer garments, tied them around him, jumps into the water. I'm assuming he swam to the shore. The other disciples had the hard job of towing that net full of heavy fish back to the shore. And John, because he's an eyewitness, mentions the number of fish that were caught that day, 153. Now, a typical fish catch in that day would have been maybe 10 to 20 fish. And so this is not just a fish story. This is actually a miracle. Those 
153 fish probably weighed about two pounds each. And so you see a picture of Simon Peter, a strong man, pulling this whole net of fish onto the shore. And when all of them arrived at the beach, Jesus had cooked breakfast. I don't know about your family and what maybe your traditions or gatherings have been impacted here at Christmas by COVID, but I can share a few about the hellers that have fallen on some troubled times. Back in 1997, when my wife and I were newly married, we had no children. We arrived here in Evansville to serve as youth pastors here at Crossroads. And the first Christmas Eve we spent in Evansville, we actually ate at a Mexican restaurant, just the two of us. And our server sat down and ate with us because we were the only two in the restaurant. Well, some friends of ours from here at church didn't want that to be repeated the next year. And so they invited us to join them and their family and some friends at a local Asian restaurant. And so that started for us a tradition that still goes on till this day of the Hellers eating Asian food on Christmas Eve. Now, with COVID and just to be safe and healthy, we as a family have not eaten in a restaurant since March. We've eaten on the patio of several outdoor restaurants, but we've not gone into and sat in a restaurant. And so because we have this tradition of eating Chinese or, or Japanese food, our preference is to go to a hibachi grill where they do all the cooking in front of you. And the, I'm like the biggest kid at the table. Like I still love the choo-choo train and the smoking volcano and that egg trick in the hat. I mean, it gets me every time, right? Well, we're not going to be able to do that this year. And so my wife had a good idea. She said, what if we bought a griddle and we did our own hibachi grilling at the house? And she nominated me as the chef. And so we, this Thursday night, after the last Christmas Eve service, will go home and we're going to do hibachi as a family in the front of the garage, you know, at the, and bring it to the kitchen table. Now, I don't know what kind of cook I am. <laughs> in fact, if you live in Newburgh and you hear fire engines about 7.30 on Thursday night, just pray for your preacher, all right? That would be, I mean, a, a lot to me. I cannot guarantee my family what kind of cook I am. But I think that morning on the beach, Jesus cooking breakfast, fish for these fishermen, I think that was the best tasting fish they had ever tasted. I think in this moment we can see a parallel to what John records in chapter 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet as an act of service. We now might also see another parallel of a moment recorded in John 6, where Jesus takes a small boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish, and he performs a miracle that feeds 5,000 men, their wife, and also their children. We see in this moment something about Jesus, that he came to serve, not to be served. That Jesus in this moment shows up as provider, as miracle worker. And maybe tonight you just need to have some encouragement that Jesus is concerned about your situation and he's capable. Maybe because you look at your Christmas list yet to purchase and you realize that it's longer and bigger than the amount of money you have left in your checking account because COVID has limited your work or maybe taken your job. Maybe the health concerns of your family or the people that are close to you or maybe the grieving you're experiencing because of a loss of a loved one is maybe too big for you, but it's not too big for Jesus. He can perform miracles just like he fed the 5,000, just like he provided a miraculous catch of fish. He can do that in your life. I also want you to note that we recognize Jesus most when he serves. And that should be an indicator for us that we will be most like Jesus when we serve. John notes that Jesus was there in the flesh. 
And that none of them had to ask who he was because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus had appeared to them in flesh. He had revealed his humanity by eating with them. He had revealed his deity by the miracle he performed. And he revealed his humility by serving their needs. Did you catch the reaction of the disciples? While they didn't initially recognize Jesus on the shore, the miracle he performed awakened them to the presence and power of Jesus in their life. Think about a moment where maybe you were awakened to the presence and the power of Jesus in your life. And I hope that it gives you confidence to trust him to provide, to trust him to care about the needs you have right now, and to motivate you to obedience and further devotion. And if you've never heard that that is how Jesus is, maybe tonight you will be encouraged. They all moved closer to Jesus, and they were filled with joy. And I think that joy was a result of their obedience. What if they had thought to themselves, like, who's this washed-up crazy man on the beach trying to tell us professionals how to fish? Like, old man, gotta, like, mind your own business. We've been out all night. We've done everything we know how. We've caught nothing. We're headed back home. We're going to knock it off for the night. We just need a break. Well, that kind of response would be a result of pride or doubt or fear, even disappointment, not joy-filled obedience. And it leads me to wonder, like, what is your posture when you receive advice from someone? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's a coworker or a friend. Maybe it's somebody in authority, like your boss. How do you respond when you're given direction or instruction from your boss? Or what about when you read scripture and you come across a passage that gives you actions to take? How do you respond? What about those promptings from the Holy Spirit? Well, I love Peter's response. In this moment, it mirrors the same response that he had in Luke chapter 5. In both those moments, he had a choice to obey Jesus' instructions. In Luke chapter 5, these men had been fishing for a long time. Jesus gives them instruction to put their net on the other side of the boat. And I love Peter's response. He says, because you so so, I will let down the net. You know, Peter might be worthy of our criticism in many moments and in, for many things, but I love his exuberance. I love his exuberance that leads him to act and to obey. Sometimes he gets a little ahead of himself, like that moment he said, hey, Jesus, I mean, if everybody denies you, I won't. Or that moment he's like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, you're, you're not going to wash my feet, big boy. Or that moment he pulls out his sword and he whacks off the ear of Malchus, one of the servant leaders uh, one of the, a servant of one of the temple leaders. In this moment, I admire Peter for having faith and courage that leads him to obedience. And you know what? I admire the fact that God continues to refine him and form him into a powerful hand in changing the world. I hope that you won't miss next weekend. It'll be the last weekend of the year and the last weekend of our study in John. And I want to, to really drill down into this tender moment that we see playing out here with the rest of this breakfast meal, especially the encounter that Peter and Jesus have. Don't miss next weekend. I see in this moment joy in Peter springing up as a response from his obedience. And it mirrors the joy that I see in the life of Mary as she responds to the words that the angel Gabriel gave to her in announcing the birth of Jesus. 
Luke chapter 1 records this interaction between Gabriel and Mary. We've visited many times throughout our study already, but you, you know that Gabriel appeared to Mary and she was troubled by his presence. And he says, greetings, Hi, woman, you are highly favored among God. And then he tells her uh, uh, some troubling news. You're going to get pregnant. And she's like, ruh row. I, I know the math doesn't add up here. Like, there's a couple things that have to happen for that to be a possibility. And that's not happened. And yet Gabriel says to her, this is from God. Just like those five loaves and two fish turned into a meal for thousands, just like those miraculous fish, 153 became present on the shore that day. God performed a miracle in Mary's life and brought the Christ child. Mary was initially troubled at the angel's words. There was certainly a lot to take in and process. And she had a choice to make, to obey or not. And there was a lot that hung in the balance for her decision that day. Not just for her, but for us as well. You know, this time of the year, there's a lot of trivia games, like take the letters of Christmas and see how many words you can make out of it. And like, you know, what is this riddle? Which Christmas carol is that? But there's also some spiritual humor that seems to emerge. A lot of it's about like trivia questions about the birth of Jesus. Like, what did Mary ride on her way to Bethlehem? And most people think it was a donkey. But the Bible really doesn't say what Mary rode to Bethlehem or that she rode anything. She may have walked all that mile. Can you imagine being Mary, pregnant, and great with child, walking to Bethlehem? Can you imagine being with Mary, great with child, walking to Bethlehem? Both of those seem a little crazy to me. You know, another question is like, how many wise men came to visit Jesus? And we have these nativity sets that have three wise men. And that's because there were three gifts mentioned in the Bible. But it never mentions how many wise men there were. In fact, it could have been 10 or maybe close to 100 that visited Herod looking for the Christ child. Which leads to a good dad joke opportunity. Like, why did the wise men smell like smoke when they came to visit baby Jesus? Because they came from afar. Like, get it? Like, far, fire. It's a little hillbilly humor for you. It's not, okay, never mind. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. It's late. I understand. All right, one more piece of trivia. What did the innkeeper say to Mary and Joseph when they arrived in Bethlehem? Well, most people say there's no room in the inn. Well, that was the word given, but there is no mention of any innkeeper in Scripture. In fact, history would say that people didn't stay in motels or hotels when they traveled. In the ancient world, when you traveled, you actually ended up staying with family. And so, like, when Mary and Joseph would have been looking for a relative to stay with there in Bethlehem, what happens when your unmarried teenage niece, daughter, or granddaughter shows up at Christmas pregnant? And she has a man with her, and she claims he's not the father of the child. How do people respond? How is she treated? Probably the same way that Mary and Joseph were treated, because none of their relatives offered them a place to stay. And so where they found themselves sleeping was with the animals, whether that was in a barn or a cave or maybe the first level of, a, of an ancient first century home. I don't want you to get caught up in the details. It's really important to know the facts, but don't miss Mary's reaction. When Angel Gabriel told her these things, how did she respond? She said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be to me fulfilled. In fact, what she's saying is, I will obey. Here am I, send me. I'll throw my nets on the other side of the boat because you told me to, Jesus. What a powerful word of obedience. I think you can hear the joy in Mary's heart 
when she bursts into song after she makes this commitment to obey. Luke records this song, and she says things like, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You know, one of the strongest warnings that we see in Scripture in the Old Testament, and it's copied into the New Testament, is this. If you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. You know, God spoke to many people throughout Scripture, and many chose to disobey. Life never works out really well when we choose that path. Whether it's God telling us to do something and we choose not to, or him telling us not to do something, and it seems like that's what we choose to do. Sin is disobedience. And the consequence for sin is death. We shouldn't take it lightly when God speaks to us, when he gives us instruction, and we shouldn't harden our hearts. The Hebrew writer speaks about the hardness of the hearts of the people of Israel when he writes in Hebrews chapter 3 these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was so angry with the generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath that in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. He's talking about the people of the Old Testament, the people of Israel, who saw the mighty acts of God, who heard the voice of God give instruction, and they didn't obey. And so he gives this now word of challenge to us when he continues by saying, see to it, brothers and sisters, meaning you and me, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. You know, neither Mary nor Peter were sinless. Contrary to what some have been taught or what others have taught, Mary did not give birth to the Savior of the world because she was perfect, but because she was obedient. And Peter's blunders are many, and they're recorded in detail mostly by the Gospel of John. But none of those mistakes disqualified Peter from being useful to building God's kingdom because it wasn't the end of the story for Peter. The book of Acts and the other New Testament books speak of Peter's obedience to God and the powerful impact he had on the world. Peter believed in who Jesus was. He had received the grace of God through Jesus' death on the cross. He believed that Jesus had resurrected and he boldly obeyed God's call on his life. And it filled his heart with joy. And that's why he writes later in 1 Peter chapter 3 these words. I'm reading from the message translation that says, What a God we have. And how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. And the day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. So roll up your sleeves, Peter says. Put your mind in gear. Be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then. You do now. 
And then look at this last sentence. He says, as obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. So many people in our world today are looking for happiness. And they are giving themselves to many pursuits to find it. Well, here's a fact. Happiness is simply just an emotion. And it's fleeting. But joy, joy, on the other hand, is more than emotion. Joy is a response that comes through obedience. Throughout Scripture, obedience and joy are cemented together. Psalm 19 verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. Proverbs 29 6 says that evildoers are snared by their own sin, but the righteous shout for joy and are glad. And Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Meaning that joy is produced by our lives being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Scripture speaks about the joy that comes through obedience as well as the joy that is given to a father when his son follows his instructions. It's personified that way. And when I ran across that this past week, it really reminded me of some of the lessons my dad has poured into me from being a wee little lad, right? And one of those lessons is about joy. If I was to describe my dad in one word, I would use the word joy. He's just a man who always seems to be having a good day. But it's not accidental. It's not incidental. It's actually a choice that he made. And he shared the the wisdom of that joy with me as a young boy and with my siblings. He said that, Joy is found by putting Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. When I think about my dad, the way he lives and the way he loves, I know that he's not perfect, but he's been a great example of what that joy looks like. My dad puts Jesus first in his life. An example of that is that every morning he gets up and the first thing he does is he goes downstairs to a basement room and he spends about 30 to 60 minutes reading scripture and praying to God. I cannot tell you how many Christmas mornings I sat in my PJs in front of the Christmas tree waiting to open the first present until my dad came up from the basement having had time with the Lord. It was extremely frustrating as a young boy, but I'm eternally grateful for the example of my father putting Jesus first, even on Christmas morning. When my dad puts Jesus first in his life, it dictates the the things that he watches on TV, the movies that he goes to, the music he listens to, and even how he responds when UK basketball plays the way that they have this season, for crying out loud. It reminds me of what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, that in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Other translations say, set apart Christ as Lord. And here's the key, my friends, that joy comes through surrendering our lives to Jesus' control and obeying him in everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, how we treat others. My dad puts Jesus first, but he also puts others next. He puts the needs of others before his own needs, the needs of my mom, the needs of me and my siblings, the need of the congregation that he serves. My dad's 80 years old and still preaches every Sunday morning. He visits more hospitals than I can count in a week's time because he loves people and he cares for them. But it goes beyond that. I'll never forget going to school functions and being late because on the way from my house to the school function, there was somebody walking alongside the road, a hitchhiker, and my dad would pull over and offer them a ride, take them where they needed to go, and then continue on the journey to that school function. 
My dad knows the people that bag the groceries at the local supermarket by name, and they know him by name. It's because he's never too busy just to stop and see them as people instead of just see them as, as somebody who's serving his needs. My dad puts the needs of others first. And like I said earlier, we'll never be more like Jesus than when you and I serve the needs of others. And I think that we'll never have more joy than when we give our lives as an offering to God and to blessing other people. Paul speaks about the joy he experiences by watching people he's poured his life into follow God and, and give their lives in service to others. And I just want to say as your pastor and, and as your friend and brother in Christ, I want to say thank you. And I want you to know how much joy it brings me to watch this congregation serve the needs of others right here in our community. Last weekend was the affordable Christmas event at the Glenwood Leadership Academy. And because of the generosity of this congregation, over 90 families were able to come and buy presents for their families and to have a meaningful Christmas. There were over 500 gifts to choose from. On top of that, $2,500 was given to the Glenwood Leadership Academy to use in whatever way to, to help bless their school. And what excites me the most is there was 150 families from right here at Crossroads that gave generously to make that happen. Thank you. I'm so proud of the generosity of this church, and it gives me joy to watch you living and loving like Jesus. Also, I just want to say thank you for your investment in what we established as the, the COVID relief fund in, in the early parts of this year to serve the needs of people right here in our community that were impacted by COVID. Over $150,000 was generated to be placed in this fund. And needs have been met all this year. In fact, as of Monday, there was $4 remaining in that fund, which meant that that money has been distributed to people in need. That money has gone to pay rent, to pay utility bills, to provide free counseling for families, for frontline emergency workers, health professionals at local nursing homes and ERs, and even some teachers in local schools. Some of those dollars have gone to create a, an emotionally healthy or a break room for some teachers in, in the Newburgh Elementary, in the Sharon Elementary. Teachers that are facing some incredibly challenging times as they deal with COVID, as they think about teaching in person and teaching online and dealing with their own health or family situations. Those monies were given to people outside of the walls of Crossroads. Not a dollar went to somebody who calls Crossroads home or has a connection with Crossroads. We cared for those people above and beyond that, that $150,000. So thank you. Thank you for living and loving like Jesus. I hope that you find joy when you do, when you obey. Jesus first, others next, yourself last. My dad just has a tendency to put himself last. You can find my dad getting food at the end of the line, whether it's a church fellowship meal or even our family gatherings. My dad doesn't think less of himself. He just thinks of himself less. And I think about how he lives when I read Paul's words in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking for your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Then Paul burst into song. I mean, it seems like when there's joy in your heart, you just want to sing, right? That's what Mary did. That's what Paul does. And he sings a song worshiping Jesus and challenging us for our attitude to be the same as Jesus, who humbly served the needs of others. 
We welcome the joy of the birth of Jesus into our lives, as well as the resurrection and the joy that it brings when we respond to who Jesus is by obeying him as Savior and as Lord. We find joy when we live and when we love like Jesus. I think that's why Henry Nouwen says this, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. So I want to challenge all of us to make a commitment. As we celebrate the arrival of Jesus as a baby, as our Savior, as we proclaim his resurrection as our risen Lord, and as we await his arrival as reigning king, I want to challenge us to put Jesus first in our lives, to put others next, and by doing, experience the joy he brings through our obedience to him. To close tonight, we're going to spend some time in communion. We're going to celebrate how Jesus lived and how he loved. When you came in tonight, you may have picked up some of these emblems. If you're worshiping at home, grab some juice, grab some bread, and we're going to remember Jesus together in just a few moments. I hope that we'll take these quiet moments that we've planned just to reflect on Jesus' death and his resurrection. It's where we find forgiveness from our sins and to receive the gift of eternal life. I also hope that you'll consider where Jesus experienced the joy in his own heart. Look what Hebrews chapter 12 reads about Jesus. It says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Did you catch where Jesus and when Jesus experienced joy? It was after the cross. It was after he obeyed his Father's command, obeyed the will of the Father by giving his life as a ransom for others. Then he experienced joy. Let's consider how you and I can respond in obedience and experience the joy of Jesus, not just at Christmas, but every day of our life. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful that you pursued us to a point where you would offer yourself in the form of Jesus to us who desperately need salvation. We need hope. We need peace. We need joy. It's not something that we can stumble upon, God. It's something that you give to us as a gift through Jesus, through him saving us from our sins and also by him leading the way and being an example for us to follow as we obey your word and your voice. And God, I pray that each of us who call Jesus Savior and have called Jesus our Lord would live like it. And because of our obedience, God, because we have found joy in Jesus, that we'll receive joy by, by living for him and loving the way he does. God, I pray that this world would recognize that there is nothing that can offer that kind of joy. And there's also nothing that can take that joy away. And as we remember right now the sacrifice of Jesus, God, would you remind us of his obedience? Would you Give us a picture of what that joy looks like and that it would motivate us to live and love the way he did. And I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.